When are we going to have a COVID-19 vaccine? How good is it likely to be? How long do we think that immunity will last? How are we going to be sure that it's safe? How on earth are we going to answer all these questions with confidence? As soon as possible, please! Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Galit Alter about vaccine development. While we focus on COVID-19, we also touch on other vaccines for comparison. This episode is part two of our conversation. Be sure to check out the other episode to learn about COVID-19 severity and the factors that influence your outcome. Dr. Galit Alter is a PhD scientist who studies the immune system and has deep expertise in chronic viral infections and vaccine development. She is a professor of medicine at the Reagan Institute of MGH, MIT, and Harvard, and co-director of Harvard's Center for AIDS Research. Dr. Alter received her PhD in experimental medicine from McGill University. I'm thrilled to be chatting with a fellow Canuck. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Dr. Galit Alter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thanks for having me. I have a bunch of questions about vaccines and I can't wait to have someone in front of me who can actually help answer them instead of just wildly speculating. Um, so, so I guess let me, I'll just throw some questions at you and we can sort of figure out how to, how to go through them. But I mean, of course, the sure. thing everyone's wondering is, you know, what are the timelines? And, and, and for me, I would think more in terms of what are the drivers of the timelines? Um, what's going to make or break how long this takes? Um, and I want to know, I guess, through your expertise, um, what do we expect? What can we expect for efficacy? And again, we're not going to know until we get there. But how how can we learn from existing um, viruses and vaccines in terms of setting our expectations for performance of a vaccine, and then what that implies for how many people need to actually be taking it? So those are, I guess, the big ones that I think I want to try and tackle as much as we can. And I think I think a lot really of people like myself don't really know off the top of my head. Um, you know, why are some vaccines, never really thought about like, why are some vaccines one shot 10 years and other ones, you know, once a year, 50% efficacy, right? So, and, and how can we put this virus in that context? Okay, so you're asking all the best questions that I think immunologists have been trying to answer for like decades, right? So, so I don't have an answer for you, but I can tell you where the, the theories lie in this area. So let me start off with, um, I guess, your first question, which is um, the question about efficacy. So, so the issue is, is that, um, you know, what, we can, what our endpoint readout is of what we consider an efficacious vaccine is going to vary from pathogen to pathogen. It's going to vary right. probably from population to population. So there's no secret sauce. There's no lesson that we can learn from, you know, flu or from SARS-1 or any other vaccine that's going to tell us whether a vaccine is going to work for this particular pathogen. Um, so the endpoints for this for this round of phase three studies that are already ongoing or are you know in the pipeline are coming out very soon. Um, they're looking for severity of disease and, and hospitalization events is what they're looking for. So they're trying to reduce that particular endpoint outcome. So that makes sense to me because I think we're not looking to completely block infection. We don't know if that's a realistic goal at all, and I think that's something we can come back to about what is realistic as a you know, potential outcome for this vaccine, mm -hmm. because we think that most people who do see the virus don't really have any disease. 
Let me just, just back up and just state something um, just for clarity yeah. that when you have a clinical trial, you're gonna, you have to pre-specify your definition of success. And so that's what we're talking about when you're using the word outcome. Right. We're talking about the definition of success and you're saying this trial is going to be considered positive if it achieves this score according to this metric, right? That, just to be clear Correct. about what we're talking about. Yeah. So they're not really right. counting how many people are having mild disease, how many people are having no. zero immune reaction. They're just counting how many people are having severe disease or hospitalizations and trying to set a threshold of what success is. Right. And so it doesn't mean they're not capturing that other information. Those yeah. are going to be exploratory outcome variables that they're going to look mm -hmm. at. But in, in essentially yeah. what they have to do is they have to basically say, this is our ultimate goal. And our ultimate goal is to try to reduce the number of individuals who have to go seek hospitalization right. and particularly that are going to develop severe disease, right? Mm -hmm. So require ICU care or any kind of intubation. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, so, um, so that's the ultimate endpoint, And that is obviously the most realistic because what we'd like to do with a vaccine is to reduce the number of severe cases and mm -hmm. the, you know, the unpredictable nature of that population. We don't have a perfect therapeutic yet that's going to reverse yeah. the course of that disease. So that's the goal that we're going for right now with the current vaccines that we have in the pipeline. Now, given that you need an awful lot of individuals, right, yeah. to be exposed and to get infected in order to be able to see just that population. If we think that, you know, roughly about, you know, 20% of individuals will develop, you know, moderate disease, maybe 20% of individuals will develop severe disease or 10 to 20, 10 to 20%. Then you basically have to build these really huge studies, yeah. right? And this is why these studies are ranging from somewhere from 20,000 to 70,000 individuals that they're following over time in order to get to that ultimate yeah. um, endpoint. Yeah. What's fascinating is that, I don't know if you saw that by the news, but Pfizer had to add another couple tens of thousands of individuals to their trial. And so the question there is whether or not they didn't have enough statistical power to, you know, see the value of their endpoint. That's why they had to add more people, or if it was that they were trying to seek information on additional demographics, right? So across the yeah. ages, or across the ethnicities, or the genders. Yeah. So, um, so there's a lot of variables in here, but that's the reason you need to have so many because that's the endpoint we're trying to get at. If it was yeah. just infections, that would be a different story potentially. Yeah. The um, the point though is I think that you know the studies are incredibly um, large, so they should definitively answer the question, and that's what's really important. Mm -hmm. And many of the vaccine companies and many of the vaccine trials are pos positioning themselves in areas where there is sufficient spread of the virus mm -hmm. that they should have sufficient cases that they should be able to, number one, you know, potentially offer interventions for those populations that may be more vulnerable. And that's a very positive thing. I think that, that is something that we have to really commend these groups for making an effort to put these interventions where they may be the most useful even now. Um, but I, I think secondly, and I think very importantly, I think that what we're gonna end up with is we're gonna end up with a definitive answer across multiple different vaccine platforms. And so it's gonna give us a whole lot of information mm -hmm. about how these vaccines work across different populations. And that's gonna be mm -hmm. really quite exciting for this uh, particular unique time in history where we've never had so many vaccines tested for a single pathogen simultaneously, mm -hmm. right? This is wild, right? When we have flu trials, we have one platform at a time. Now we have, you know, somewhere on the order of like five to eight and like a hundred more coming in the pipeline that are all um, aimed at testing whether or not we can drive effective immunity against this particular virus. Mm -hmm. Now, question about durability. Should we go to that one? Because that's an sure. interesting question. Okay. So, so um, you know, for decades, we have um, not fully understood why it is that some vaccines 
fact, some clinically approved vaccines just give you immunity for life and others give you immunity for just a few years. But the one thing is clear is that um, all these vaccines that we take throughout our lifetime, they do have different lifespans in which they drive durability of protection. So that means the length of time that they can actually you know, provide the level of immunity that is required to prevent that particular infection. What we have begun to learn from doing deep immunological studies on these platforms is that they seem to be triggering different flavors of immunity at the time of vaccination. So, for example, vaccines that um, include live pathogens. So they're attenuated, but they're actual pathogens like the measles vaccine, the mumps vaccine, the um, hepatitis A vaccine and others. These are actual viruses and they infect our cells. They don't cause disease, they are fully attenuated, but because they cause an infection, they stimulate the immune system in a way that essentially triggers this cascade of signals that essentially establishes immunity for life. Mm -hmm. Conversely, the vaccines like tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, these are all just pieces of pathogens. They're just mm -hmm. proteins that are part of pathogens. And when we provide these to the immune system, the immune system sees them as foreign. The immune system develops antibodies to fight those particular foreign proteins, but they don't see it in the context of a pathogen. Mm -hmm. So they're not getting the signals that are telling them that there is something really bad about this particular protein. They make antibodies, but they don't make them in a way that's gonna last for their entire lives. So what we've begun to understand is that the way that we deliver vaccines to the immune system, the kinds of cascades that we induce at the time of vaccination is probably the most important information that we're giving the immune system on how they should direct immunity and for how long they should direct immunity. Mm -hmm. And so every day we're coming up with like new ways to trick the system, right? We're learning how to break the immunological code. We're trying to learn how to figure out what those signals are. It feels a little bit more complicated than a computer program, right? Because we have to figure out all these like super um, complex signals. Mm -hmm. But I think that as we begin to break that code, we're gonna make vaccines that are gonna be able to drive immunity for the right length of time and with the right quality. Yeah, so if you're saying that um, just on first principles, attenuated, um, va so vaccines based on attenuated viruses make a lot of sense and they also have proven to work well in other viruses, um, what are the reasons to not just pursue that strategy exclusively? Oh, uh, you know, so, okay, so um, so let's go back in history, right? So so this was essentially the way that, you know, Pasteur kind of made his claim, right? So mm -hmm. he was the one who gave birth to this field of attenuated pathogens. And he, I think, very eloquently got up at many, many conferences and said, this is the only strategy we must not look at any other strategies because I am Pasteur. Um, the fact is, is that, I mean, he was very successful and he made lots of vaccines that really have provided long-term protection. The problem is that, you know, to guarantee with 100% confidence that there is zero pathological agents in an attenuated mix is very difficult to provide that guarantee, right? So, just, so you're so, not going to so, put... Yeah, so safety. Safety, exactly, right? <laughs> so number one. Secondly, right, um, you know, from lot to lot, those attenuated pathogens will be different. And so will you always be driving the same level of immunity, right? Okay. This is the same thing like with wines, right? We make a fine wine, but from mm. year to year, the grape changes a little bit. And so the wine I changes see. its taste, yeah. the same vineyard, same grape, same everything, right. but it tastes a little bit different. 
And the same thing is true for attenuated pathogens. You can make one lot. It's not going to last forever. And if I make one lot, is it going to be the same as the next lot or the next yeah. lot or the next lot? Right. Can, can, and, can and just process... back up for one second, just since, since we sure. jumped on the word safety, just to be clear, attenuated doesn't mean unsafe. It just means it's harder to, there's just, it's just like harder from regulatory perspective and from a technical, technological perspective to kind of get that high guarantee. Like you just have it involves work to get there. I'm just, I'm just don't want to make people nervous about those right. that exist out there that are oh, attenuated. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. They are, they are absolutely safe. They cannot enter human testing until they are 1000%, you know, safe and efficacious. And that is vetted by, you know, an armamentarium of assays and experimental approaches that really prove across multiple animal models that there's no disease caused by those vaccines. The process is just really arduous and it's very expensive and it's really complicated. And this is what makes, you know, inactivated pathogens a really difficult platform, although it has been our workhorse for, you know, a hundred years or more. Yeah. Um, now, now that, that being said, right, there are inactivated particles that are being explored through companies in China. Um, there's already one that I believe has safety data and is already moved, has potentially even completed phase three testing and has mm -hmm. shown incredibly promising uh, performance. It's just the, the problem again is, is that, you know, this platform is really difficult. Now, yeah. other platforms, right, right that use um, innocuous viruses to deliver antigens to the immune system, they still leverage a viral particle yeah. that causes no disease, but yeah. it, still, it still causes an infection. Mm -hmm. It doesn't hurt us, but it exposes our immune system to these new proteins that are part of our target pathogen we want to kill. And it's still leveraging all the immunological signals required to drive effective right. immunity. Right. So this is like a, it's like a Trojan horse. Yeah. We're coming in with something super safe. And now we're essentially using that cargo to basically expose the immune system without causing any risk of disease. Mm -hmm. Again, there is incredible, you know, you know, intensive investigation to prove that even those platforms are incredibly safe. There's no evidence of disease, not only in human cells, but also in multiple animal models. So we go through extensive testing with all these vaccines because I think that we know that we're never going to put something into humans that's going to cause any kind of risk or any kind of potential um, uh, disease down the line. Now, the, the probably some of the cooler platforms that are coming out now are some that are taking advantage of synthetic biology. And so this is kind of getting into this new phase where we can create so many different types of molecules in, you know, in the lab. And so these synthetic molecules essentially mimic what we would have in a virus or we would have, you know, in a, um, in a cell. And we use these synthetic platforms to try to drive immunity in a potentially safer and higher throughput kind of way. And so one example is these mRNA vaccines, right? So these are these vaccines from Moderna and from Pfizer. These are, you know, two really exciting uh, um, companies that have been moving very quickly into thinking about how they can synthesize RNA, which is essentially the software of all of our cells, right? You're essentially inserting this code into the cell that we know the cell can read and can immediately make proteins that are encoded in that software to essentially tell the immune system to make a response to this pathogen antigen. Mm -hmm. um, and the neat thing about these particular software pieces is that we can deliver them with different kinds of inflammatory cues. So we can yeah. try to mimic what would happen with infection. And so we can try to trigger the right cascades that then drive those long-lived protective immune responses. So I think we're moving slowly towards these synthetic platforms mm -hmm. because they're in some cases easier to synthesize yeah. and they're also really um, 
nimble and really flexible and easy to manipulate um, and yeah. also very safe. Yeah. Um, my brother actually asked me this question, like, is it possible that science can actually give us a better vaccine than the virus itself? Can we, because people are a little bit disappointed, I suppose, in, in what we're seeing from the virus itself and the disappearance of antibodies, at least as an indicator of, of reinfection possibility. So, okay, so first of all, I don't think that those antibodies are disappearing as fast as we think. So mm. so um, if you have a chance, I wrote a commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine a few weeks ago, okay. um, just to say, just, you know, okay. wait a second, everybody, don't listen to the media only, no offense. But um, <laughs> but I think I think that what, what's, what's really interesting is that, um, is that when you look at the time of when you sample individuals, right, early on in infection, you're going to get a really rapid crash of antibodies, but then your immune system stabilizes and makes antibodies at a very stable level. Mm -hmm. And I think many of the studies that have been looking for persistence of antibodies have been looking at this very early time point when people are coming off, you know, out of the hospitals or that are kind of just following the tail end of their severity mm -hmm. of symptoms. And so it's natural that the antibodies are going to be going down. But if you look at them over time, there was a really nice study out of Iceland. Oh, no, mm -hmm. sorry. Yes, out of Iceland. Um, that actually did show that um, these antibody responses are incredibly stable at least for four months in individuals okay. that they're studying in a general population. So I don't think that they're transient um, really at all. But there is reinfection. Now, the, yeah. the point about reinfection is really interesting because what's interesting in most of the cases that have been re reported for reinfection is that um, these individuals um, may have had symptoms the first time, but they don't mm -hmm. have symptoms the second time. So their antibodies are conferring protection. They're not blocking the virus from getting in, but they are preventing the virus probably from going down and causing disease. So the antibodies are working. These cases of reinfection are exactly what we wanna see with a vaccine. I think it's unrealistic to think that a vaccine will for life prevent us from getting a little bit of virus, nuclear material in the, in the nose. But it is realistic to expect that these vaccines will essentially stop disease, right? That is the goal. And that is, as we mentioned before, the endpoint of all these clinical trials. Mm -hmm. They're not looking to prevent virus from getting into the upper respiratory tract. Yeah. Yeah. These cases of reinfection are actually evidence that the antibodies are working mm -hmm. in these individuals and they are mm -hmm. preventing the disease. And that's exactly what we should expect. So nature is actually telling us that it works. Now, so you're feeling I, I optimistic. Well, I'm, I'm I'm always a half glass full kind of person, but that yeah. that should not change the fact that you know there there is important um, pieces of information that we always look for to try to think about how we can do better than nature. Mm -hmm. So the clear thing that is true, and the one thing that bothers me, and I'll I'll be completely honest about this, is what bothers me is when I do um, profiling of SARS-CoV-2 patients in my lab, we see this enormous heterogeneity in antibody levels across the population. So there are people who have equivalent amounts of symptoms. They have, I, you know, theoretically the same comorbidities, same age, same everything. And you'll have some people who has like billions of antibodies, and some individuals who have like hundreds. And this why is, at the is same it a time point of infection? Same time point of infection, right? They're super stable at their levels, but their spread is mm. unbelievable. And so why do they have the spread? That is what perplexes me, right? Mm. What vaccines can do better, though. I think is that vaccines will make everyone go to the same level, mm. make everyone go high. Mm. And to me, that is a really important point because in that way, we will know that we're going to hit a level, hit a threshold that hopefully will last for a certain period of time that will be beneficial and will confer protection. And so then we won't have this worry 
you know, as we know with other vaccines, that if you're kind of skimming the kind of low levels of antibodies, that those individuals might still be slightly susceptible. And why that happens, that's something we don't want to have in a population, particularly if, you know, some people might be more vulnerable or more exposed or so on and so forth. I guess we should probably wrap up for the sake of time as much as I would love to quiz you for, not quiz you, but you know me, I would love to pepper you with questions for at least another hour, potentially way longer, but um, just for the sake of time, getting um, your thoughts on what might be an optimistic view of what we would see in terms of vaccine and development in the next six months and what might be a more like average case view. So this is an unusual time, right? Like this is a time we've never seen anything like this in the vaccine development space, right? So typically it would take us at least 20 years to get even close <laughs> to a clinical trial, right? And so now we're talking about like, you know, just a few months until we're like in, in yeah. clinical testing from the time that we had the, the sequence back in January, to the time when the first vaccines, right? Pfizer and ent- Pfizer entered clinical testing sometime in June or July. I mean, that is like unbelievable. Like, I mean, talk about world records. Like there's nothing like that before. Um, efficacy testing is going to be released probably in the next few weeks. It's not unreasonable to expect that some of the first efficacy data is going to come out, you know, sometime in, you know, late October, early November. And then based on that data, you know, different regulatory boards from different um, countries around the world can provide uh, emergency use authorization, which I think has been on the news. That emergency use authorization is not permission to use the vaccine at a population or global level. It just essentially provides the regulatory checks and balances that allow us to go and put that into individuals who are at the highest risk, so probably frontline workers, right? So people who are involved in, um, you know, at high risk jobs like physicians, nurses, EMTs, you know, folks who are, you know, really interacting with the virus every day. Um, It's going to then take a couple more months probably until we go through full FDA review or other regulatory body review until we get full um, approval for these particular um, vaccines. Mm -hmm. And the incredible thing about this time point in history is that many of the vaccine companies have made lots of these vaccines at risk. Right. Yeah. So normally they wait and would manufacture after if they get approval. Now they've already got all the lots. I mean, it's yeah. totally amazing. So these um, vaccines are being bottled as we speak. They are basically going to be deployed to all the different sites. And then as soon as approvals go through, essentially, you know, the it's up to the governments and to the um, provinces and to the states to decide how they're going to deploy them. And so I believe there's already very active discussions um, all across, you know, the world about who and how we're going to prioritize the deployment of vaccines. So I don't think it's unrealistic that sometime in Q1 or Q2, we're going to start to see these vaccines roll out. And I would say that, you know, by summer, um, I think that it will be um, something that is not an unrealistic reality to start seeing that there are going to be people vaccinated that are not necessarily only the ones receiving that EUA approved vaccine. Um, so that is, I, I don't think it's a non-conservative timeline to assume mm-hmm. that the vaccines are going to start to roll out um, at some point in mid-2021. Would the most likely showstopper be safety events? Or, or like, I mean, if things, what would, what would derail, th- what do you think are most likely to derail things? I mean, we've seen the safety event issue, right, with AstraZeneca, right? Yeah. So with the two cases of these um uh, autoimmune conditions that have popped up in patients um, with the AstraZeneca trial, um, vaccine trials have been halted, right? The yeah. phase threes in some places. They have reinitiated them, I believe, in Europe and in Brazil, 
but I do not think that they have reinitiated them yet in North America. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, it is not unusual or unexpected to see some risk of these autoimmune complications following vaccination. They, this is not what vaccines do. And it is not the vaccine who, that caused those particular cases. It's not even clear those cases even emerged in vaccines. They may have emerged in placebos. Mm. But I think that the important point that we have to recognize is that autoimmunity events occur. There has been terrible propaganda um, suggesting that autoimmunity is linked to vaccination, mm. which has you know, raised fear. They have, most of those stories have been completely disproven right, the um, association between autism and vaccination has been scientifically completely shown to be absolutely wrong. Um, but because of that, you know, we are extremely vigilant and we're, you know, paying a lot of attention to those safety events. So the AstraZeneca trial has obviously slowed down. With all the others, we've seen zero um, evidence of any kind of autoimmune events. And as I mentioned before, or any kind of really severe uh, complications. So they're looking really outstanding. And even to that effect, I think the AstraZeneca vaccine looks really outstanding. And until we know whether that autoimmune event was really just some random, mm -hmm. you know, accident that occurs in a population level, um, I think it is um, unethical to assume that it is caused by the vaccine and the vaccine causes any kind of risk in, this po in the population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, forget who, I, I saw something in the news, I forget who it was quoting, but someone involved in the trial said, you know, this happens all the time, we just don't normally have the whole world watching. Exactly. I mean, autoimmune, I mean, like, you know, it, it's a really sad thing to say, but you know, it, this is the age, right? It's when we're adults that all of a sudden these autoimmune conditions emerge. And when you're being scrutinized, right, in a clinical trial, this is when those events get picked up. And those events that happen mm -hmm. to get picked up by a physician watching you every week, yeah. right? If something pops up, then of course, you know, people automatically want to make the connection that it's due to the vaccine. Right. But right. it is not necessarily due to the vaccine because we don't know if that person was a placebo. Right, right. It's just like seeing cancer rates go up when you screen more. It's like, well, you were looking for it and there you go. Correct. So, but the vaccines look yeah. good. I mean, the, the side effects look really, um, they don't look terrible. They look quite moderate and mild. And I mean, and the immune responses are really outstanding. Great. Um, on the, any last closing thoughts, any things you wanna share, whether it's debunking, you know, something that you hear a lot or common fears or just any messages you wanna leave people with in, in terms of, um, you know, the science of COVID-19 and, and setting the record straight? Yes, I think my only last thought that I think I wanted to share is that I think that everyone has um, been in a re reactionary position for a very long time, right? We're trying to basically um, ward off this virus and we're using RNA testing and we're using, you know, these uh, strategies to really fight the virus, but we're not taking a very strategic, um, proactive uh, look at trying to fight this virus. And I think that the way to do that is through the immune system and understanding how the immune system mm. counteracts and protects us from disease. I think antibody testing has not been used as effectively as it can be by many populations. And I think that understanding really how individuals resist infection, understanding how the immune system naturally fights the disease, mm -hmm. I think that is the key to empowering us to understand how we can evaluate our vaccines better. And by constantly being on the defensive, right, and always thinking only about the RNA testing, that does not give us or empower us with the information right. that's going to allow us to make the right decisions about how we move forward with the interventions that are going to be the most protective across all populations. So I think my last thought is just, you know, let's stop defending and let's start, you know, fighting. Um, and let's do that through um, a better understanding of the immune response to this pathogen.
I love it. Go immunology. <laughs> well, thank Good. you very much for all the work that you do. Um, I also just, I should, I wanted to quickly plug, um, I believe you're involved in the, is it called COVID explained website? Um, I love it. I didn't, I, after I only figured out the connection after I invited you to interview. So I love that website and I highly recommend it. And I'll just put in a plug for it here for, um, just getting a straight, Thanks. the straight scoop on the science in understandable terms. Um, but with enough detail. Send us more questions. We'll answer anything you want us to answer. Okay. Will do. Thank you very much for your time. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Take care.